0: A British newspaper, The Times, breaks a story on the true origin of the COVID-19 virus. President Biden touts a reduction in border crossings, but his numbers don't add up. And Senator Charles Grassley says there are 17 recordings of Joe and Hunter Biden working on the Burisma deal. This is Truth in Politics and Culture with Dr. Tony Beam, and it's time to crank it up. joining me this morning, and we're glad that you found the website drtonybeam.com. You can go to drtonybeam.com anytime, uh, but from 6:30, or I should say, <laughs> it's 6:30 here in New Orleans. But where you are, it's probably 7:30 because uh, if you're listening live, the show airs from 7:30 to 8:30, and it's just so it just so happens that uh, here in New Orleans, we have to back it up an hour, so have to get up a little earlier, even after not getting to bed last night until um, well after 11 o'clock, uh, and getting up and doing the show this morning. So if, if I'm a little punchy, uh, just just cut me some slack, because uh, we got a whole lot of stuff going on here in New Orleans. With the Southern Baptist Convention, it's usually that way. A uh, lot of activity. They have things scheduled in the evenings. Uh, had an opportunity last night to attend the National African American Fellowship Banquet, which was incredible. Uh, the worship, the preaching, all of it was uh, just amazing. And it's so encouraging to know that the Southern Baptist Convention has uh, a good number of African American pastors and leaders, and worship leaders and lay people who are um, associated with and attending the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, their work and ministry is—it's vital for us to work together, and a lot of that—the discussion last night was about how we work together with that group, and how the Southern Baptist Convention is made better through our diversity when it comes to um, racial diversity. we 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 have a large number of African Americans and Hispanic pastors and. Um, Asian pastors and lay leaders and worship leaders, and all of us working together sharing the gospel is just a great encouragement. I mean, it is to me, and I know it was to everybody that was attending the banquet last night. Um, After that, we got together with South Carolina folks that are here at the Southern Baptist Convention, and I was amazed to discover that the estimate of the number of people from South Carolina that are here in New Orleans this week, is around 500. Now, they weren't all at the reception last night, but a great number of them were. And it's just good to see a lot of my friends and folks in South Carolina that are working together together to spread the gospel, um, to see people come to know Christ as Savior, to encourage those who are following Jesus, and just to um, in, engage and be involved with folks that um, we I'm engaged and involved with every day but I get to see them here at the convention and talk about some of the things that are going on. Today is the actual first day of the Southern Baptist Convention in terms of the business meetings. We had the pastor's conference yesterday, so we had preaching all day yesterday, and I had an extended meeting that I had to go to yesterday morning. It turned into about a a three-and-a-half-hour meeting. It was all good, but it just took up a lot more time than uh, I thought it was going to at the beginning. And um, so most of my day was spent yesterday. I had a uh, my Baptist Courier article was due, <laughs> I had to get that finished, and uh, then spent my day at the booth at North Korean, that North Greenville University has here, talking to a lot of folks, seeing some former students, and enjoying that fellowship. But today, um, the business meeting starts, and some of the contentious. Uh, items that are going to be discussed today, of course, Saddleback Church, uh, along with four other churches, have been fellowship has been withdrawn from those churches by the South by the Southern Baptist Convention because of the ordination of women as senior pastors or having a senior pastor role, and that's something that the Baptist Faith and Message it, uh, says is not part of Southern Baptist life. It doesn't mean just because something is in or not in the Baptist faith and and message, that doesn't mean that we're condemning people who disagree with us about a particular doctrinal statement. But it means that if we're going to cooperate together, it's going to have to be more than the cooperative program. The cooperative program is how we raise money for institutions like our seminaries and the North American Mission Board and the Foreign Mission Board, but how we worship and exist together is defined by the things that we agree that the Scripture teaches that are important. And I you know, I understand Saddleback and their desire to remain Southern Baptist, and I, I, I would like for them to remain Southern Baptist, but for them to do that— they're going to have to adhere to the Baptist faith and message. Uh, the Credentials Committee, the um, and and the Executive Committee have already essentially ruled that fellowship is going to be withdrawn because of that. That Saddleback has decided to ordain a woman who is going to be a senior pastor or play a senior pastor role at Saddleback Church, along with the other four churches that. Have done the same thing, and look, I I disagree with that. I think I'm a complementarian, uh, which simply means that I believe that men and women are equal before God, but they're called to different roles in the church and in serving the Lord. Um, and one of the roles that is not biblically uh, or offered. To women as senior pastor, and, and really, it's one of the only roles in Scripture. Women do ministry every day. Women are engaged in uh, ministry and serve in the church and serve as leaders in different uh, parts of the church. And nothing's ever said about that. I mean, that's not that's not the issue. The issue is this one question of can women be ordained as senior pastors? Uh, can they hold that office in the church? And Southern Baptists have traditionally uh, said, according to their faith statements, that the answer to that is no. It doesn't mean that women are less than men. It doesn't mean anything like that. It mean, the, the Baptist faith and message states that men and women are equal before God, but the roles that they play are different. And I wish these churches would just agree to disagree and say, okay, we're going to move on, we're going to do our thing, we're going to continue to serve the Lord, spread the gospel, but we just realize that there's a difference of opinion here between us and Southern Baptist and the doctrine that Southern Baptists have embraced. And so we're, we're going to have to go kind of a separate way, still working together, but not in the sense of being Southern Baptist. But that's not what they chose to do. They have chose to appeal to the convention, and they have the right to do that. So there will be a convention vote. I don't know if it will take place today. But to to either back the Credentials Committee and the Executive Committee's decision to withdraw fellowship and to return cooperative program dollars to these churches, or uh, the convention can overrule the decision of the Credentials Committee and um, the Executive Committee and keep those churches in the convention, continue fellowship, um, and just have a disagreement about this issue. And it's true that there are churches in the Southern Baptist Convention that are not being disfellowshipped or or, um, fellowship-withdrawn that have differences of opinion that may or may not be cited in the Baptist faith and message. But some of those differences are very minor, and so they aren't emphasized. But differences that are considered to be major doctrine, at least by the leaders of the convention, and traditionally in the Southern Baptist Convention, those are the things that will get a church disfellowshipped and, or fellowship withdrawn and um, ordaining a woman to serve in the role as senior pastor. In that capacity, in the church is one of those things. Another likely contentious thing today, which it—I mean, when I say contentious, um, I just mean to say that there are two people running for president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Bart Barber is um, the S- uh, hes the Southern Baptist Convention president right now. Usually, when they run for a second term, a president runs for a second term. It's it used to be perfunctory that the president would get a second term. Uh, That's no longer the case because there's an ideological divide in the Southern Baptist Convention. There are those who think the convention is not conservative enough and that we need to go in a much more conservative direction. And the candidate that would represent those folks in the convention that believe that is Georgia pastor Mike Stone. Now, he's former SBC presidential candidate. He's run for president before, um, and he's the he and he led the conservative Baptist network, or and actually, he still leads that group. And he announced a couple of months ago that he was going to run against Bart Barber, who's the current president. So, don't know how that's going to turn out. I mean. Um, You know, uh, we a lot of the talk in the convention hall yesterday has been about is Mike Stone going to be able to unseat Bart Barber? Uh, Who who all is here? You know, everybody starts looking around and saying, okay, how many people are here from this state? How many people from this region of the country? Because typically you have uh, more conservatives coming from the southeast than you do other parts of the country, and so. Um, that's kind of been a conversation, and and nobody really knows. I mean, until the vote's taken, um, nobody – we're not going to know for sure. We're actually not going to – and no matter how much speculation there is, um, about half the people that are speculating are going to be wrong once the votes are counted. So that's going to be taking place. And then there's going to be a report – there's a possibility of a constitutional change – in with the, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention's constitution um, that that is related to how um, a, a group can be disfellowshipped. And then there's also going to be the report from the uh, task force that was put together, the Sexual Abuse Task Force. They're supposed to bring their report to the convention. And the what I'm hearing is that they have not had enough time to complete their report, and they're going to be asked for more time uh, to do that. Don't know if that's going to become a contentious issue or not. Uh, I think there will be a lot of discussion about it because there's been a lot of concern expressed about the manner in which Guidepost went about conducting the investigation and how their report is impacting the, uh, the task force that was put together to try to deal with uh, the accusations of sexual abuse in the churches and in the institutions of Southern Baptist life. So that will take place sometime today as well. Tomorrow I'll be able to give you a little bit more information. Uh, Tonight our North Greenville University alumni event is going to be held at Malatz, and we're looking forward to that. Uh, we're expecting um, Dr. Tony Wolf, who's the new executive director-treasurer of the South Carolina Baptist Convention, is going to be there along with Dr. Gary Hollingsworth, who is the j- just recently retired executive director-treasurer. He's going to be honored tonight, and uh, we always have a, a lot of fun with seeing a lot of our alumni. I think the last count, we had over 100 people signed up for this event tonight, which um, which is going to be great, and we're looking forward to it. All right, let's get into the news of the day. Um, Of course, uh, as you heard when I opened the program, there was what some people are calling a blockbuster report that came out in the Times newspaper. The Times is a British paper. And according to a a report in that paper over the weekend, the U.S. State Department investigators who have been looking at the origins of COVID-19 have now concluded... That the virus came from the Chinese bioweapons military research. So in other words, this wasn't some kind of um, experiments that were being conducted to try to determine how viruses mutate in order to develop vaccines, in order for us to be ready to um, make sure that we could um, face these vaccines once they develop. None of that is true, according to this report. The report goes into some detail about how the Chinese military was involved and that the purpose of the Chinese military being involved <clears throat> being involved was to create a bioweapon and COVID-19 was one of the early results of their attempts to do that. Uh, the research in question is believed to have started as early as 2016 and it was at least partially funded by the United States. The report appeared, as I said, in The Times, and the release of the virus appears to be accidental. The report still says that this, it's not like the people at the Wuhan Institute or the Chinese military decided to release this virus in some kind of test function, or to say, let's, let's let this out and see what happens. Let's see if our bio weapon is gonna work well. That's evidently not what was taking place. It was an accident. But the State Department investigators are now convinced that COVID was part of a bioweapons research program that was conducted by the Chinese government. The Times reports that the People's Liberation Army started collaborating with bioscientists and workers at the Wuhan Institute of Technology where they had success in mutating pathogens. Now, this is where we're getting into some pretty deep weeds here. I mean, when you mutate a pathogen, you cannot have but one purpose, and that purpose is to create something that's dangerous. It's to create something that can be deadly, or at least um, have the ability to infect a lot of people. So this, this gain of function achievement was aided by somebody at the University of North Carolina. In fact, this person is named um, it's a vi- virologist from UNC, Dr. Ralph Barrick, and he worked with Wuhan chief researcher Dr. Shi Li, and they actually bragged about one of their mutations that turned out to be an enhanced version of the SARS virus, and that came as early as 2018. So in 2016, what you have is the People's Liberation Army in China they go in to the lab at Wuhan, and the research, the nature of the research at Wuhan, changes once the military gets involved. All of the paperwork dries up. That is, all of the accountability, the transparency of what's actually going on there, kind of goes out the window um, once these, once the Chinese military. Gets involved. Researchers kept working on the gain of function with the coronavirus, but they kept partners that they had, like Eco Health Alliance, in the dark. And Eco Health Alliance, it's important for us to remember. If that sounds familiar, it's because that's the group that was run by a, an ally of Dr. Anthony Fauci, Peter Daszak. And of, and of all the, and it appears that all of the post 2016 experiments were ha- were highly classified. So you've got the Wuhan Institute rocking along, doing what they do, um, basically experimenting with different kinds of viruses, determining their strengths, their weaknesses, and then in steps the Chinese military in 2016, and everything gets shut down. Everything becomes classified. All paper trails, all documentation is buried. And so investigators that have been looking into this were able to discover the Chinese military's involvement because they gained access to a large portion of this classified information. And some of the classified information that they were able to get a hold of included hacked communications, testimony from sensitive sources, and they went through just reams of information that formally was classified, and evidently a lot of it was still classified, but they had the ability to see it. Uh, they didn't reveal the total amount of information that they had access to, but it was enough to convince the investigators that COVID-19 was both a product of a bioweapons program and that its genetic code was a product of gain-of-function research. Now, The question as to whether Anthony Fauci lied to Congress, um, that question now has to be answered by what did Anthony Fauci know about how the money was being used that was going from EcoHealth and the National Institute, the NIH? Did he know that that money was going to gain of function? Because now there can't be any question that gain of function research was taking place in Wuhan, and it was taking place not to help humanity by figuring out how to come up with the next vaccine or to keep the the next virus from forgive me going viral. Um, None of that was the case. This was a collaboration between the People's Liberation Army of China and the Wuhan Institute and they were trying to weaponize a virus. They were mutating pathogens. They were looking for a path to develop a weapon that can be used, not necessarily on the battlefield, but anytime um, uh, you know, e- even before or after major battles. I mean, usually when you talk about on the battlefield, you talk about actually while their hostilities taking place. But if you can introduce a, introduce a pathogen, a highly infectious pathogen, into the enemy, so to speak, um, you can make your enemy sick. Um, and they lose their ability to fight. And, of course, that's why uh, the Chinese military were interested in this. A March 2018 grant application was discovered that reveals that the Wuhan Institute proposed to make strains of the coronavirus more infectious, that that was one of their goals. Chinese officials refused to reveal any information by those that were attempting to find out what happened with the coronavirus. Chinese scientists began working on a vaccine in November of 2019. Now, this is long before it actually recognized COVID-19. So in November of 2019, they're working on this vaccine for a virus that supposedly doesn't exist yet. And yet in 2020, you had a Chinese military scientist that patented the vaccine. Apparently, one of the lead scientists in trying to develop the vaccine decided, okay, this is primarily my research. I, I'm the one that came up with this, so I'm going to be the one to benefit it. I'm going to get a patent. And he was granted that in February of 2020. Two months later, supposedly, he, we know he's dead, but supposedly he died by accidentally falling off the roof of the Wuhan lab. Yeah, let me let, me let that sink in for a second. He accidentally fell off. Off the roof, the guy who just happened to get the patent for the virus, for the vaccine, for the virus that had been generated in this lab by collaborative efforts between the People's Liberation Army and the Wuhan scientists and researchers. No one outside of China has been able to confirm any report of how this scientist died. We just know that he's dead. So Dajek and the NIH have attempted, of course, as you can imagine, to distance themselves from this report. They told the Times when they were contacted for a comment that none of the experiments at the Wuhan lab were dangerous and that all lab safety rules were followed at all times. Well, that's interesting because we already know that US investigators that audited the lab as early as 2018 found a serious shortage of trained technicians and they were very suspect of the safety measures that were being employed. They believed that those safety measures were not adequate to protect the workers and to make sure that the virus didn't escape. So the NIH went on to say that it's never approved any research that would make a coronavirus dangerous to humans. Well, that's interesting because the agency struck a deal with DAJIC in 2016 to allow EcoHealth and the Wuhan lab to continue to experiment on the coronavirus as long as the mutated pathogens didn't reproduce too quickly. Well, reproducing quickly became the actually the whole focus of the program because the chinese military wanted a virus that was highly infection and the, infectious and the fact that you know that 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 would lead to quick reproduction of the virus and so all of this by the nih by anthony fauci by dajek by um, the the chinese government all of it is now coming to light that the coronavirus although it still was an accident in the fact that it was released. Uh, None of this information points toward an intentional releasing of the virus, but that all of the work that was done on the virus, the mutation of the pathogens, the gain of function, the ability for this particular virus to be more infectious, all of that was carried out by the Chinese military, and the lab technicians at Wuhan. So we'll see where this report goes. I mean, I, it's going to be interesting to see how the Biden administration spins this. I mean, how are they going to, are they going to come back and say, well, this report is bogus? Are they going to come back? And, are they going to question Anthony Fauci anymore? Is, is Fauci going to be held uh, accountable for any of this? All of those are questions that will continue to follow in the news. But that's an incredible story. Um, that's out today. All right, um, let's talk a little. Well, actually, it appeared over the weekend, but it's being talked about today. Before we get to um, President Biden and the number of illegal crossings at the border, which the Biden administration says are way down, but it depends on the math that you're using, and we're we're gonna we're gonna get into that here in just a minute. But let me just remind you that President Trump's due to report to a Miami courtroom today. Um, He's, he's going to be charged with these 37 counts of—and of, uh, and actually there are espionage counts in there—the mishandling of classified information and documents at Mar-a-Lago, uh, as well as obstruction of justice and making false statements to the FBI. All of that's coming down today. There's a lot of concern that there's going to be a clash between protesters that are there to protest against the president, former president— and a lot of his supporters that are likely going to show up. So security is going to be high today. And that's another reason to tune in tomorrow to this program because we'll be talking about what whatever transpires. We'll talk about it and try to give you the facts about it in the morning. All right, according to the Daily Signal and other reports that are out today, the Biden administration is celebrating what they call a dramatic decrease of 70 percent now, let's let that number sink in a second. Seventy—we're seeing a seventy percent decrease in the number of count of encounters with Ill, illegal aliens in the past month at the nation's southwest border. So they're saying that the program that they put in place is a history-making reduction in illegal crossings, and that everything's fine down at the border. Everything's wonderful. There's nothing to see there. There's nothing to look at, nothing to be concerned about, because the Biden administration now has everything under control. Uh, This is a quote. As a result of planning and execution, which combines stiffer consequences for unlawful entry with a historic expansion of lawful pathways and processes, unlawful entries between ports of entry along the southwest border have decreased by more than 70 percent since May 11th, a recent Department of Homeland Security memo reads. So the DHS memo at the end states, the Biden administration's plan is working as intended. Um, As you might guess, there are those that disagree. Mark Morgan is one of them. Now, Mark Morgan is the acting commissioner of U.S. Customs and Border Protection, or he was, I should say, uh, during the Trump administration. And He's been talking to the Daily Signal and other outlets that the, and saying that the Biden administration reports about these low border encounters are all smoke and mirrors. And there are three reasons that he says this. First, Morgan says, the Biden administration is using the expiration of Title 42 on May the 11th as the benchmark for the numbers. Now, do you remember what happened in the lead up to May the 11th? when title 42 was expiring there were a record number of encounters in other words 10,000 when i say record number in the week in the week that would be 7 days leading up to the end of title 42 the border patrol encountered 67,759 illegal aliens between ports of entry now that in, in those just few days, that was almost 10,000 a day. Now, we've never seen 10,000 illegal encounters a day in our lifetime. That, that's unprecedented. So Morgan argues that the number of border crossings seen at the end of Title 42 shouldn't be the standard comparison. In other words, it shouldn't be the benchmark. That's kind of like saying when we, you know we have inflation— that goes all the way to 9%, and then we say, well, inflation has been reduced down to 7%. That's a 2% reduction. But the real question should be, what was the inflation rate before President Biden came into office, before the Biden administration um, took over? Because to to say that 7% is good, yeah, 7% inflation is good compared to 9%, what was inflation to begin? I mean, when can we go back to a time when inflation was, say, one5 to 2% or even 3%? Because that would be a normal uh, amount of inflation in a growing economy. But to get up to 9% and then to tout the fact that it's dropped by 2%, well, that's the same thing that's happening at the border. I think most Americans can look at inflation and say, look, 7% is killing me. 9% was unsustainable, but now I've got to deal with 7%, and I'm supposed to be happy about it? Uh, When you look at border crossings, almost 68,000 in a week was insane. But now that we're backing up a little bit from that record number, then we should be celebrating. Um, And the, 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 the guy who's reporting on this, the former official um, under Biden, Mark Morgan, he says, you know, and rightly he says that you once you raise that number to such a high level by the policies that you followed, then it's going to be unsustainable because there's going to come a point where all of the people that were piled up on the other side of the border that were stacking up before This before Title 42 um, was abandoned or expired, uh, they're eventually all going to get across. And once they get across, then the numbers are naturally going to drop compared to the record number that was happening before. But the question is, what was the number in 2020? The benchmark number for determining whether or not President Biden has been effective in any of his policies of the border, should go back to 2020 when he took office. What was happening then? How did those numbers begin to rise dramatically in 2020? So, in May of 2020, there were 21,727 illegal uh, crossings of the border between points of entry, but and, and, and that was May of 2020. And the May numbers haven't been released yet, but the numbers that have been put on Twitter by former Border Chief um, Ortez in his Twitter account indicates that over 180,000 illegal aliens crossed the border into the U.S. between ports of entry in May. Now, if that's true, take 21,727 – and compare that to 180,000. If that's really the number that crossed in May, if that turns out to be accurate, that's an, I mean, obviously that's how many times? That's not a 10-time increase, but it's close. It's about an eight, that's eight times more people crossing the border in May of this year than in May of 2020. So that part of the reason that we've seen illegal border crossings reduced is because of the Texas National Guard and state troopers that have been sent to the border that are redirecting these aliens to ports of entry. So in other words, between ports of entry, where we've seen a high level of illegal immigration, but the National Guard in Texas and the state patrol working together have been effective in pushing those people toward the ports of entry. And so... Morgan calls what the Biden administration is doing the big shell game. The 70% decline in encounters with illegal aliens reported by DHS refers only to encounters between ports of entry. And because you've got so many aliens now being directed to the ports of entry by the Texas National Guard and the fact that a lot of these new policies that have been put in place – are sort of greasing the skids to get people into the country legally, uh, where they're able to pro, they're being able to process more people at the ports of-, of entry. We're 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 talking about in an average month, if if this holds, we're still talking about about thirty three thousand one hundred and seventy nine migrants will arrive at ports of entry for their scheduled meetings to claim asylum. And DHS reports that an average of 3,700 migrants a day are still either crossing the border illegally between ports of entry or arriving at a port without a scheduled appointment. So that's about 114,700 a month. Migrants who arrive at a port without proper documentation to enter the country are labeled as inadmissible, not an illegal entry. And so that sort of changes the number. Adding the number of migrants, and this is where the math begins to add up. When you add the number of migrants with scheduled appointments via CBP-1, which is the new way of processing migrant crossings, to the daily average of migrants crossing illegally or presenting at a port of entry without an appointment, the monthly average becomes 147,870. And that's triple the monthly average at the start of 2020. So this is, this is what doesn't make any sense. The Biden administration doesn't want you to look at the beginning of his administration to make your evaluation about whether or not his immigration policy is working. The Biden administration wants you to look at the highest numbers ever recorded over a short period of time and then claim because those numbers are down – that we've got a 70% reduction. Yes, a 70% reduction of the highest numbers in history. But still triple the number of people that were entering the country illegally in the beginning of 2020. And that's where the focus needs to be. So what I'm trying to what I'm trying to get you to understand is that when you read these numbers that the Biden administration is touting and bragging about the fact that these numbers are down dramatically, um, don't believe it because we still have a tremendous problem at the border. We need immigration reform. We need a process by which we have an orderly entry into the United States by those who a certain number every year is allowed to enter because of work opportunities that we have, because they, there are people who... Um, or adding to uh, the United States in terms of their knowledge and ab- ability to help our culture, our th- our society thrive. I mean, that we we have to manage the number of people that are coming in and we have to have a, a logical reason for the number that we pick. We can't just continue to allow a constant flood of immigration whether it's legal or illegal. And the combination of legal and illegal immigration is unsustainable because we just don't have the support systems. I mean, and and part of that's being revealed now because a lot of these that are crossing the border are ending up in New York, Chicago, different sanctuary cities, where officials there are screaming about the fact that they don't have the resources to take care of them, even though they brag about being a sanctuary city. So this is, um, I mean, that we, we need to know the truth. If, if the American people know the truth, then we can make right and good decisions about what we need to, fit, to do to fix a problem. But it has to begin with figuring out exactly, being able to wade through All of the propaganda, all of the political rhetoric, all of the false statements that are being made by the Biden administration, the false comparisons, so that we get an accurate picture of what's actually going on at the border. All right, final final story today that we're going to look at. Uh, By the way, before I get into this, let me uh, just let you know um, I'm going to pack up all this equipment. I'm going to take it over to the convention hall. And I'm going to be interviewing people today. So there's going to be some additional podcast material. Uh, this program, of course, will be uploaded as a podcast as soon as I'm finished doing it live. And there'll be additional podcast material today that'll be uploaded if you want to hear some of the interviews I'm going to do in the convention hall. I'm going to be do- uh, talking to Dr. Tony Wolf, who's the new executive director-treasurer of the South Carolina Baptist Convention. At some point, I'll be talking to... Um, uh, Dr. Daniel Dickard, who's the new pastor at Shandon Baptist Church in Columbia, and he's also um, that we just finished the Pastors Conference, and he was the president of the Pastors Conference this year. We're going to talk about some of the themes that we had. And I'm also looking forward to talking to Brent Leatherwood, who's the president of the ERLC. Their report is going to be given in the morning, and uh, I'll be I'll be on the platform for that Uh, backing up our president as uh, one of the trustees. So in any event, um, you can look forward to some of those interviews. There may be some other people. We're just, as people come by the booth, interesting people, leaders in the convention, if they have a few minutes, I'm going to sit down with them and talk to them about their role and how they see Southern Baptist life. And all of that will be available as additional podcast eventually. And um, on top of that, uh, you can listen to them live. They'll be live on Facebook and live on YouTube if you want to check in throughout the day. I know the interview, the the one scheduled interview that I have that I know the time that'll be it will be available live is with um, Tony Wolf, Dr. Wolf, and that's going to be at two o'clock this afternoon. All right, um, this is coming from the Daily Wire by Daniel Chatlin. Sen- uh, we have a senator, Senator Grassley who is revealing that the FBI informant file references 17 Biden audio recordings. So, in other words, this document that they came up with, that the file uh, 1023 and the FBI's possession, as, the, as everybody began to look at it and see the material unredacted, there, most of the members of the Oversight Committee saw redacted material, but there are those... Who have been able to see this material that are investigating unredacted. And according to Senator Grassley, he said one of the 1023, 1023 files has has been shown to members of the House Oversight Committee. And with the redactions removed, it turns out that this confidential source says that the person who was making these deals with the Biden family, talking to Vice President Joe Biden, talking to Hunter Biden, has 15 audio recordings that he did with with, um, with two of them, with Vice President Biden being on the call and 15 with Hunter Biden for a total of 17 recordings. Um, here's, here's the quote from James Comer, who's, Uh, the chairman of the Oversight Committee in the House, the 1023 produced to the House Committee redacted reference that the foreign national who allegedly bribed Joe and Hunter Biden has eight audio recordings of his conversation with them, 17 such recordings. Now, that's Comer talking about what Grassley revealed from the floor yesterday of the Senate. And we've got a little bit of Grassley's, um, what he was saying yesterday. I'll let you hear it. Here we go.
1: So now, let me assist for the purposes of more transparency on this subject. The 1023 produced to the House Committee's redacted reference that the foreign national who allegedly bribed Joe and Hunter Biden allegedly has audio recordings of his conversation with them. 17 such recordings. According to the 1023, the foreign national possesses 15 audio recordings of phone calls between him and Hunter Biden. According to the 1023, the foreign national possesses two audio recordings of phone calls between him and then Vice President Joe Biden.
0: Now, obviously, if any of this is true, um, this is a game changer. If there are if there are audio recordings of Vice President Biden having any conversation with anybody from Burisma about Hunter Biden's job, about money exchanging hands um, in in order for uh, this prosecutor in um, in Ukraine that was causing problems for Burisma, in order that Joe Biden would use his influence to get rid of the prosecutor if if there's any information that points to the vice president who then vice president biden in this regard um i i think there could be impeachment proceedings now i'm not i'm not saying that that's going to happen yet this is all alleged information um, and there are those who say that because Trump is being charged, that all of this is being talked about, that the FBI has looked at every bit of it and determined that none of it has any bearing or, or any credibility, um, and that's why they dim- dismissed it long ago. But as I reported yesterday, Bill Barr says that that's just absolutely not true. Bill Barr has been pretty hawkish on the prosecution of President Trump. But he says that this information, when they come out and say that the FBI dismissed this, the FBI hasn't even vetted it. They were given the information, but they have yet to get anything that amounts to a credible investigation of whether these tapes are valid and whether or not this informant's information is accurate. And so it's taken Congress to be able to discover this. Um, Grassley added, just a few minutes later after what I played, the, t- the 1023 indicates that then-Vice uh, President Joe Biden may have been involved in barisma employing Hunter Biden, and they actually found a footnote on the 1023 document that refers to two other documents that the FBI has. And so Comer says those two documents date back to 2017, And I know I'm flipping back and forth between Grassley and Comer. Grassley's the senator. Comer is the House member that's head of the oversight committee in the House. So a congressional source told The Daily Wire on Monday that the oversight panel is working with the FBI to schedule a time this week to view the other FD 1023 records, two more of them. So what are they going to find? We have no idea what's in those 1023 records but the fact that they exist plus the possibility of 17 audio recordings 15 with Hunter Biden 2 with former vice president Biden actually on the tape and the 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 person the informant says that the person who made the audio recordings did so in order to cover their back that if any of this ever hit the fan that they were going to be able to prove that they what their involvement was and what the involvement of the vice president and Hunter Biden was. They wanted an insurance policy, and these recordings are their insurance policy to try to keep them from, to give them leverage in the event that all of this information came out. So, I I, I mean, what, what do you say about this? I mean, as far as a running commentary, all we can say is that this is disturbing information that the FBI has known about, has known for years, um, and they've done nothing with it. They, they've treated it like it was nothing, but that's before any kind of vigorous investigation to find out if these tapes exist or to find out if any of this information is correct. And so that, I, I mean, th- this is not going to be able to be ignored. Right now, the legacy media, Uh, is pretty much ignoring this story. The only place you're going to find it is maybe National Review. You're going to find a little bit of it. uh, I mean, you're going to find it at Daily Wire. You're going to find it at Fox News. But most of the legacy media, the Washington Post, the New York Times, uh, even the Wall Street Journal, is not getting anywhere near this. And it's because they don't want to talk about... It's the same thing that happened with the Hunter laptop. They were claiming the major news sources at the time, that they couldn't verify that that was even Hunter's laptop. And that was before the election. Well, we now know that they absolutely did know that it was Hunter's laptop, and they buried that story because of the upcoming election. Um, They're not going to be able to bury this story between now and the election. This is is going to come out. We're going to find out whether or not those recordings really do exist, what's on them, and we're going to find out exactly how deep this rabbit hole goes with Vice President Biden and with Hunter Biden. Now, I want us to think here for just a second, I mean, where we could be headed um, in this next election cycle. Because you've got President Trump being indicted today on 37 federal charges. And regardless of how you feel about the president, where you think he was railroaded or not. And look, I have no doubt Believe me, I I don't have the Justice Department wants to get Trump, just like Alvin Bragg in New York wants to get Trump, just like every other prosecutor uh, that's progressive would love to have an opportunity to be the one to say I'm the one who brought down President Trump. There's no question. We, there's a history of President Trump being sought after, being chased by prosecutors. Um, the, the Russia, Russia, Russia stuff. that All of that makes people doubt that these charges against him are anything but bogus. But I would encourage you, look into the charges, because like we said yesterday, it's very possible that two things are true at the same time. Number one, it's definitely true that the Justice Department and certain prosecutors on the left are out to get President Trump. It's also, number two, possible that President Trump made bad decisions when it comes to how he handled these documents, and how he responded to the National Archives, and how he responded to the federal government when they were when he was asked to turn those documents back in. If he obstructed justice, if he covered up, if he made false statements, um, all of that is going to be the according to. Uh, some who have seen have looked all the way through the indictment, and I, and being here at the convention this week, I just haven't had time to sit down and read the entire unsealed indictment. I intend to do that when I get back home so I can talk a little bit more intelligently about it. But those who have done it say that the evidence is pretty strong against the president. And then we've got a prosecutor in Georgia that's going to be filing charges. They're going to accuse President Trump. The grand jury there is likely going to file charges accusing President Trump of trying to interfere with the election in Georgia. So now you've got three separate, or at this point you've got two separate prose, uh, prosecutions. A like, Likely a third is coming down the pike. And now you've got President Biden being called into question about whether or not he took bribe money, up to $5 million, with Hunter getting another $5 million from Burisma for his influence. It was nothing more than the sale of influence. It was influence peddling. And so what is the election going to look like if you have President Trump convicted of any of these crimes? Trump says he's not dropping out of the race. Trump said, in fact, his polling numbers um, are pretty much holding steady within the Republican primary the number of general, the, the general population. I mean, you, you start looking at people outside of the Republican primary that will be voting for president, and they're beginning to raise a lot of questions about whether they can vote for Trump or not. Even some of the, the diehard core of President Trump's supporters are beginning to express a little bit of frustration with some of the actions that the president took in this document scandal. So what the, the question being, what if... President Biden is rendered incapable of running because of this burisma information that keeps coming out that the FBI has information that they've been sitting on. What if President Trump is convicted of some of these charges? What if the trial takes place before the election? He's in the middle of the campaign season, and it turns out that he's convicted on one or more of these 37 counts. And who knows what's going to come out of Georgia? What does that mean for the presidential field? I mean, you look at Tim Scott. You look at, at uh, Nikki Haley. You look at Chris Christie. You look at Mike Pence. You look at all these candidates that are getting in the race, and you're saying, well, these, these people don't have a path. What are they doing stepping up into the race? Well, there's a possibility here that if enough of these legal troubles mount for President Trump that he could lose support He's not losing support now. Usually, when he's charged with um, um, issues, particularly from the federal government, uh, that's going to increase his support because people believe, rightly so, that he's been unfairly targeted because they hate him. I mean, and President Trump has said this many times that if they hate me, they hate you. Um, that, that the hatred toward him is actually directed toward his supporters. And there's no doubt, in order to be honest, we have to be able to say that that's certainly going on, that that's part of the picture. But also, in order to be honest, we have to admit that President Trump has handed them some of the hammers that they're using to beat him over the head, and that that's not been obviously not been a good thing for him. We, we, we need to be honest and say we don't know yet. Where these do these recordings of Hunter Biden and Vice President Biden at the time do they actually exist? If they do, that could be a game changer. It could mean that the the whole presidential race gets shaken up. I mean, why is Gavin Newsom, for example, going on with Sean Hannity? Do the do the the Democrats do, do the Democrat leadership know something that we don't yet know? Do they see Biden running into? problems that could cause him to have to step away from running for at least from running for re-election is Gavin Newsom getting geared up. I mean is he is he being primed to step in and what's going to happen if president Trump if these legal troubles lead to a diminishing in his popularity is that a lane for DeSantis is is Ron DeSantis going to then be the one that everybody's going to be gunning for to try to knock him off Um, And and that would be, of course, include Tim Scott, Nikki Haley, Mike Pence, uh, Chris Christie, um, uh, who else? Asa Hutchinson, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, and the others that are in the race so far. Larry Elder is another candidate out there. So we're going to follow all of this. One of the things I can say for sure is this is not going to be a boring election cycle. (laughs) I can say for sure that we haven't seen the last of any of these news reports. And we're gonna to try to keep you up to date as best we can here on Truth and Politics and Culture with Dr. Tony Beam, because that's what we do. We try to get to the bottom of all these stories. I hope you've enjoyed the program today. And don't forget, there's gonna be other programs available today. I'll be over at uh, the Convention Center here in New Orleans. I'll be interviewing some folks coming by the booth that'll be made available as long as, as as well as this podcast and then I'll be back in the morning at the regular time 7:30 6:30 for me 7:30 for you with another edition of Truth in Politics and Culture with Dr. Tony Bean. Please share the program, talk to your friends, point them to the show. If you like it, they'll probably like it too.